I'm stood on the outfield at the county ground here in Hove. I'm joined by Sussex head groundsman Andy Mackay. You've had a few years in the turf care industry. Started off um, up north in terms of Blackpool and, and Lytham St Anne's there. Uh, what was your first role? Uh, my first role, I, I kind of fell into the industry. Um, it was a job while I was doing A-levels. Um, my uncle was a grounds chairman at um, a club called Lytham Cricket Club or Lytham Sports Club. Um, and it started as a summer job. I was cutting tennis courts, involved with cutting and rolling in cricket. We had football, we had hockey on grass then. Um, so it was quite a quite a broad start. Um, but yeah, it was it was basically helping out um, the groundsman there, Lad Stevens, who was there for a long time. And I was his assistant. So that was your first start. Did you get the taste for it there and then, or did that come later? Uh, it took me a couple of years. It was something I always enjoyed. I used to really look forward to coming to work, uh, but I never intended to become a groundsman. Um, I, I finished A-levels, I went to university, um, studied something completely unrelated. Uh, it carried on being a summer job and at Easter and helping out as and when I could. Um, and it wasn't until about halfway through university, and I was enjoying my university course, uh, but it wasn't about until halfway through I thought, well, hang on, maybe maybe I should be doing this, I should be at Myersco or somewhere like that, actually studying turf at Myersco rather than in Wales studying archaeology and ancient history, you know, that sort of thing. So so what was the, the next step for you then? Um, again, I hadn't really entertained the, the idea of being a groundsman as a career. Um, I was looking at doing other things, and it just so happened I finished university and I was... I was looking for a career to go into. I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. And a job came up at, uh, at a local club called St Tans Cricket Club. Um, and I thought, yeah, I could do that. Um, so I, I applied for the job. I was lucky enough to get the job. I'd only had five years of, of really grass cutting and rolling by then. And it wasn't until I started the job that I suddenly realised I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> so how did you fix that then? It was a very steep learning curve. Um, I, I read a lot. Um, I spoke to a few people, but it was mainly um, it was mainly finding things out for myself. Uh, books helped a lot um, on, on getting things wrong on the job. We were lucky to have a good pro at the time, a guy called David Callahan. Um, he, he was a South African pro. He was very helpful, um, and it, I sort of picked it up quite quickly. But within a year, I decided I needed to go to Agricultural College, and that's when I went to uh, Myersco College and started an HND, uh, which is now the, the foundation degree. And that was that was very useful. So you did that uh, during your time at St Anne's. Uh, what was the next step after St Anne's? Um, I, I really I was concentrating on on getting St Anne's to where I wanted it to be. I had a plan. Um, I was about three years into the plan, and Blackpool Cricket Club approached me. Their groundsman was retiring, and they wanted someone to take over. Um, I think that they liked the work I'd done at St Anne's and seen how the ground had improved. And they asked me to to go to Blackpool and be groundsman there. And I initially turned them down um, because I was I was halfway through doing things at St Anne's. I, this is a passion for me as much as a job, um, and I was very much involved with what I was doing. I didn't didn't want to let St Anne's down. Um, on the other hand, I just met my wife, um, who she was my girlfriend at the time, and she said, "Don't be so bloody stupid." <laughs> um, so I thought about it, and I thought maybe I could continue to do St Anne's Cricket Club and Blackpool Cricket Club, which of course is an outground for Lancashire, and it, she was quite right. Um, so I ended up employing my dad as my assistant. Um, yeah, he was, uh, he was, he, he was between jobs at the time, and it just seemed to work quite well. Um, so we ran the two grounds between us. Um, I was at Blackpool for a few years. I'm doing St Anne's as well. It was a great experience, very, very busy, had to be very organised, um, and it, it was another learning curve that I went on. Really just for interest's sake, uh, I did a BSc in, in Turf Science on the, the online course with Mysco. 
Uh, that was very interesting because the last time I studied uh, in, in any depth, um, if we wanted to know something, we went to the library and took a book out um, or we took a journal out or whatever, um, whereas this was entirely, pretty much entirely based online. I came down here in um, 2006. I'd, I'd kind of achieved most of the things I wanted to at Blackpool um, and certainly at St Anne's was a very good square when I left. Um, of course, in club cricket, finance is always a limiting factor. Yeah. So you can only take things so far before you either need some more money or you have to move job. Yeah. Um, and I, I've always enjoyed improving things. I've always been lucky to be able to come to grounds that, that needed some improvement. Um, so I'd started to, I'd spoken to Pete Marin, who's the Lancashire groundsman, um, asked him about county cricket. Yeah. And, and in typical Pete fashion, he told me not to bother. Um, anyway, I saw uh, the, the head grounds when the job came up at, at Sussex, Derek Trailer just left. And I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll apply for it. My CV's probably not strong enough to get the job. Uh, lo and behold, I didn't get an interview. Um, and then I saw that the, um, the head groundsman was the previous, that just appointed the, the deputy as the new head groundsman. So I thought, well, presumably there's a, there's a deputy role coming up. Um, and he was advertised on the Sussex website. So I applied for that and, um, and was lucky enough to get the job. And how long as deputy? Uh, a couple of years. Um, it, was, it was an interesting time as deputy. Um, Lawrence moved on after about two years um, and I, be, I was appointed head groundsman. So it was a case of, I've been quite lucky, being in the right place at the right time. I've worked hard at what I've done, but um, you need a slice of luck, don't you? You've been here a couple of years, but day one on, on the job as head groundsman, was there anything that you felt you needed to do? Loads. Um, I, I guess I started as head groundsman I've become a bit frustrated, I suppose, as deputy with the, the, the wickets as they were. We had very low, slow wickets. Uh, they were getting worse. And we had a reputation for being slow, low, attritional cricket. We were quite lucky at the time. We had Master Karmad playing for us, yeah. and he would take wickets on anything. So the, the need perhaps wasn't as pressing as it was towards his retirement when it became quite clear we needed to do something about the wickets so we could take 20 wickets in a game and win matches. So... What was your first step towards that then? Because I think you've redeveloped the, the whole square over the last few years, haven't you? Yeah, um, the first step was really to try and work out what we wanted to do in terms of the, the design of the wickets, uh, to come up with a design that was that was unique to us um, and to, that would give us wickets with character. What I was quite clear about not doing was to try and create wickets that they had at other clubs around the, the country. I didn't want to... Tr Wickets have, have had a bit of criticism for becoming a little generic over the last few years. Okay. So I wanted wickets with character. Um, but really what I wanted was wickets with pace and bounce. Hove used to have a reputation in the, in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, for, for having really lightning quick wickets, because we had a couple of good bowlers back then. Um, not that we don't now, but we had some <laughs> yeah, very good bowlers. Like Garth LaRue <laughs> and, uh, and Imran Khan. Yeah. Um, but Hove, the, the square had a reputation for being very quick in those days. And it, it felt right to try and restore that reputation and to try and construct something that would offer us pacey, bouncy games of cricket. So to get that pace and that bounce, how do you construct the wicket then? Uh, <laughs> carefully. Um, I, I, I spoke a lot with our coach at the time, Mark Robinson. Um, and, and I explored all sorts of avenues. I, I involved various consultants to, to get an opinion. But I think really whatever you do on a cricket wicket is, is an opinion. The, there is not really a textbook as such. Each wicket that you design or, or relay 
has to be suited to that site and it has to be suited to the needs of the site. So it's not just a case of, of pulling a book off the shelf, following a USGA spec or something like that. I'd, I'd got data on soil and all sorts of different opinions from different people. Um, and I was trying to make head and the trying to make sense of it. And I found Pete Marin up again, who's, who's a groundsman I had a lot of respect for. Right. Very instinctive, old school, but very instinctive groundsman. Um, and I called Pete up and, and he said, I'll come down, I'll come and have a look. Um, I think he wanted a road trip, actually. Um, and a weekend walked... in Brighton, perhaps. Yeah. Yes, yeah, well, yes, <laughs> the worst places to be, aren't they? Um, so I remember he walks in, in our sheds, our old sheds, which were, were over there, uh, where they used to keep the horses. And, um, and he walked in, I put the kettle on, and um, I said, oh, I've got all the soil testing here, Pete. He says, oh, don't bother with all that rubbish. <laughs> and, um, and that was typical Pete, and he gave me his opinion. And, and basically his advice was, whatever you do, stick with what, what you think you want to do. You, you're going to have to bear the results and the consequences of whatever you do. So do what you think is right and, and go with it. So we, we, we sort of set our aims out and made sure it was sustainable um, before we, we broke ground. Um, and made sure that we could keep doing what we needed to do throughout the programme of relaying. So we started in 2009, uh, we relayed three wickets that year, uh, one second 11 pitch and two first uh, class pitches, um, and we went from there. And every year, although we had a plan, I think originally we should have finished relaying by 2015, um, but we didn't want to be reckless about this, so each year we would we would examine how things had gone and make a decision about how we would go forward. You can't take risks in first-class cricket. You can't do anything that's reckless. You've got guys bowling at potentially 90 miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's an unsafe sport, so everything we did had to be very cautious and conservative. That's not my nature to be like that, but we had to be like that. Um, so... For example, in the, the consolidation, we everything was heel and toe. It was all old-fashioned methods, just because I, I felt comfortable doing that. And I felt that gave us the best control over the wicket. So we were, we were walking up and down like penguins for days on end. <laughs> um, I devised a tool that allowed us to lay the loam down in, in very even layers. Oh, right, okay. um, it was just a, a kind of um, levelling bar that dropped into the trench and we could raise up in, in increments. Um, so we used that to sort of lay the loam down evenly. And Have we... you patented that as the Mackay <laughs> levelling bar? No, God, God help anyone that feels like they want to use it. Um, it works well for us. Um, I, I realise that my methods are quite old-fashioned, really, uh, in the days of, you know, we have laser levels and yeah. um, someone like Steve Pask will put a wicket in, in, in a day and a half, if not quicker. Um, but I, I just wanted to to keep things in under control, do things in-house, do it for myself so if something went wrong, I knew where to look. Um, and we, we did things like, you know, traditionally you would lay loam down in, in perhaps a two-inch layer when you're constructing. We went to an inch layer at a time, which was much more laborious, but it meant that everything was double-heeled effectively and, and the chances for air pockets, etc., were much lower. And I th I'm quite confident that that's been the right decision. Um, the, the way the wickets have settled, they've settled very, very well in terms of the levels. Um, I chose a difficult, um, I guess the design is quite a difficult uh, design. I wouldn't recommend anyone else do it. Um, but we use, uh, we use Gosted loam and we use the Supernatural type loam. Um, it's not something that everybody would want to construct with. Um, but we, we did, I knew that would give us pace and bounce. It was a loam I was comfortable with, comfortable with the... Um, the longevity of supply and the quality of supply going forwards, they, they mix their loams, a blended product, so I know that they can make adjustments year on year 
and they're not so dependent on, on what they can find um, in fields and from developments and stuff. Um, they're a good company and, and they, they do what they say they'll do basically. So it was a, it was a, their products were something I was comfortable using. Sure. Um, I'd been using the Supernatural Loam for top dressing for a few years and it was a product I liked. It's very difficult to work with um, if you're under-resourced in any way but of course we're not, we're a first class cricket club, I've got the manpower, I can water the stuff, I've got equipment. <laughs> so from where you set out all those years ago to, to where the pitches are now, have they actually delivered that pace and that bounce that you were looking for? Potentially they can, uh, they're still young so I, I still feel, uh, last year was a great it was very pleasing to me. We went to our end of season awards dinner. We had a commendation for the four day pitches. And to me, that felt like we'd, we'd kind of arrived in a sense yeah. on the four day pitches. Um, that was personally very satisfying. But if I'm honest, we, we have some, you know, we have to be careful for the next few years. They're good pitches, they have the potential to deliver the pace. Um, we played against Worcester a few years ago. Phil Hughes was playing in that game. And um, he told one of the lads at, at Surrey that that was the quickest pitch he'd ever played on anywhere in the world. Now, that he's an Aussie batsman, bless him. Um, I don't know if that was quite the case because we just peppered them during the game. We had some good bowlers. <laughs> but to hear things like that, yeah. you know, it's really nice. Um, so we, we've we got some work to do. We need to be careful. I know that when I leave, the next guy will be laughing. Right, OK. Changing the square and, and digging up pitches must be about the, the biggest and most stressful job that uh, a cricket groundsman can do. On top of that... You also did a lot with the outfield and, and making sure that the water drains away properly, didn't you? Yeah, the, rejuvenating the square was just one of the boxes I wanted to, to tick. Uh, we, it's, I feel like we've been on a journey, really, um, and we've gone from, from where we were to where we are now. Um, so we had a few projects that needed to be addressed. We're, we're the oldest first-class cricket club in, in the world, um, and it's only right and proper that we try and give our members the best surfaces possible. Um, it's good to watch cricket on and, and you know we, we want to do the best with Sussex that's, that's what we're about so we wanted to relay the square the nets um, had recently been relayed but needed reshaping uh, we're having we're having problems with drainage and things and then there was the issue of bringing the nets into play we now have some of if not the best nets in the country it's a superb little net area it helps it being off the field actually but we've got some very very good nets um, so that was, that was one thing we wanted to do, is to reshape the nets. We rebuilt the run-ups in the nets so they drained freely. Um, it was a relatively small construction project, but that was one of the first things I did. Again, we've always been limited by, by funds, and we've had to do things bit by bit. Um, I've had to pretty much do everything in-house, because we haven't had loads of money available. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, I've been quite lucky to be at Sussex while I have. We had some money left to us by um, a guy called Spankarma. Um, he left us quite a lot of money in property and by the time it was sold it ended up being nearly £10 million. Wow, okay. Now I've not been able to invest all that in the ground okay. but it's put the club in a position where we felt we can invest in the surfaces. Um, so we, we've, we've relayed the square, we've relayed the nets, um, we've reshaped the nets, we've installed irrigation in the outfield, we, we never had irrigation so we'd start off with a, a beautiful outfield in spring and everything looks well in spring and then it would just die in the summer and it was deeply upsetting. Um, and wasn't much good for cricket. We were yeah. losing cricket because we lost grass cover in summer. Um, there was always a potential to. So we installed irrigation. I always wanted to um, reshape the outfield. We have a big slope here at Hove. Um, 
it's, there's a 10 foot difference between one corner and, and the other corner. Really? Um, it's huge. <laughs> you certainly couldn't build a cricket ground like this now. But it's a big slope, so um, we needed to not only improve our grass cover and keep the grass cover through summer, but we also needed to improve the way the ground drained and the way that water moved across the ground. One of the difficulties with having a slope which ramps down towards the square at one end from the north end is that water would run down the hill and if it really rained it would ramp up against the square and eventually run onto the square. Mm -hmm. So it had to rain hard but it was always a risk. Um, our climate's changing, there's no doubt about that. Um, so potentially we could cover the, the square, everything would be bone dry when we covered it and have a full house for 2020, pull the covers off and, and not be able to play. So it was, it was a serious risk to our business. I mean, it was something that needed to be addressed. At the same time, from a, a turfy point of view, we had a load of thatch that, that right. would have been reducing, but we still had nearly two inches of thatch in some areas, um, partially through lack of maintenance, and it was, it was, it was just a legacy and inherited. So we, we managed to install the outfield, I forget which year it was, five years ago. Um, we then had a season where the outfield looked beautiful that season, it really did. Um, we've been working hard on controlling power um, we had a very, very clean sward. It's all rye, all rye grass, the outfield. We had a very, very clean sward, very, very little power. Um, and then, then I sprayed it dead with glyphosate at the end of the season. So we were playing Lancashire, I think, in the last championship game. Um, four days before that, I applied glyphosate to the whole thing. And it sort of fell over during the match and went that, that glyphosate orange that you get. Yeah. Um, and all the spectators were saying, oh, doesn't the outfield look fantastic? And I thought <laughs> it was dead. Um, I felt very guilty because I'd murdered my beautiful grass. Um, the ECB were very kind, they allowed us to have the last two uh, championship fixtures away that season so right. we could start the work in, in a timely fashion in September. Uh, so it was about the 4th of September that year, um, we carried the surface off, removed all the organic matter from the surface, um, we then um, graded it and, and the aim was to do two things, one was to shed water off the surface down our slope and out the gate which works very well. And the other thing was to move water around the square so it would never run onto the square right. and it would run around the square. It's, we still have a problem where it runs towards the square so it was a difficult thing to manage um, as to how we graded it. But, but essentially we regraded the outfield. Um, we put some drains in around the square. We'd never had any, any drainage or any tiny bit of drainage but nothing in any, any meaningful way. So we drained the key field in positions around the square but really that was to capture the water running down the hill before it got to the square or capture some of it and then again capture it as it ran off the sheets at the south end down the slope um, and really in terms of managing heavy rainfall and water that was using a slope and, and contours that were created on the ground to do that. So for an investment, oh we then imported um, an inch of sand right, afterwards. Okay. Um, couldn't afford root zone, so we imported <laughs> sand and just stirred it in. It was like poor man's root zone, but it worked very well. Um, so we've ended up with an outfield. Um, we, grew, we grew it back from seed as well. So, um, but we've ended up with an outfield that's, that functions very, very well. The water goes where we want it to. You will never, ever see a puddle out here, ever, uh, because the water flows and there are no little hollows to capture it. It flows where we want it to and it, and it shifts it. So. Although we've improved the drainage and the inch of sand, of course, captures any, any rain and allows us to get out there a little bit quicker, um, it's, I, I think we're functioning very, very well. So whilst, whilst the Category A grounds all had money invested from the ECB in, in the region of £600,000 each, obviously each ground was different, yeah. we've done 
we, we've arrived at a, a similar quality product for a lot, lot less. Um, we've obviously we've put irrigation in and we've regrading, but we've regraded. I think the irrigation was about 80 grand. Right. Um, it kept getting dearer the longer we put it off, um, and then the regrading was was about 50,000 um, plus a, a few more thousand a year after one. We we put some sand grooving in across the drains. So, but but for a relatively modest investment, we've we've ended up with an outfill that that functions as well as any outfield on the circuit now. My maths are right, about 25% of the cost of Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. We're not as good as Lords. Uh, Lords spent a bit more money though, sure. but obviously Lords is, is always going to be that bit special because of, of, course, yeah. of where it is and, and what they've spent. So we, we've, we've relayed the outfield, we've, we've relayed the square, we've relayed the nets. I don't think there's much we haven't touched, actually. So, mentioned stress there. Um, you also mentioned power. Is that your biggest challenge here, or does being on the coast give you any others? Um, it's, <laughs> power's a difficult one. Um, it was, I didn't know where to try and work with it, fight against it. Um, I kind of instinctively despise power, as a lot of people do. <laughs> um, and I knew that we could probably contain power quite well. The idea is that we, we keep it off the outfield, which then keeps it off the square. Um, so we, we use a, we use a we do use chemical control for, for power. There's a chemical called ethofumicate. Um, it's very restrictive as to how much of that you can use and when. But that's that's one tool that we can use. Um, and we have used in the past quite successfully. If you look around now, you, you'll find some power, but it's probably it's probably less than five percent at the moment, albeit it's February. Yeah. Um, but that's something we're always we're always on top of. Um, what I'd like to do is to phrase mow the outfield each year. But that's the cost issue. We right. couldn't. We actually do. We're, under, we're trying to examine our, our sort of business model at the moment. Budgets are tight and budgets are under are being squeezed. So last year we didn't even top dress the outfield. I would have liked to. We ended up holocoring very shallowly, right. recycling that, that sand that we'd brought in. But that's not a long term strategy. So hopefully, um, once our business gets back on an even keel, and we're not in bad shape, but we're trying to be prudent. Um, once we get back on that even keel, I'll. I'll I'll maybe look at start phrase mowing and things like that on the outfield. Mentioned stress. I think cricket groundsmen have um, probably more impact on the result of a, a game than any mm. other professional turf care yeah. discipline. Uh, equally, you've got pressure coming from different sets of people. Now, um, as far as I can see it, you've got your club, your captain. They might want something from you. You might have ECB expecting something. And quite possibly, um, TV might be expecting something in terms of how it looks. Mm. And then you might even have a, another set of pressure, which is you know making a game last long enough to get bums on seats. Yep, yep, you know. yep. How do you deal with all that? <laughs> well, I don't drink. <laughs> um, I, it's a very difficult balancing act. You, you, you constantly feel like you're caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, the, the daft thing is, I remember, I remember being 18, 19, and, and sat with a mate of mine, um, saying what do you want to do when you when you graduate and he was saying I want to go into the city I want to my aim is to earn a million pounds a year by the time I'm 30 um, he, he didn't quite make it but he wasn't far off right. and um, and he, he said I'm prepared to work for that and I'm prepared to leave home at five in the morning and get back at nine in the evening he, yeah. he came from that sort of culture by the way but um, uh, and I said oh, I don't want any of that I want a, I want a nice life I want a Volvo with two kids and a Labrador in the back <laughs> and I want to be around and, and money isn't the be all and end all for me um, so I want a relative I want a job I enjoy yeah. and 
there it is. I've got a job I enjoy. I love my job. I'm very passionate about it. But I certainly haven't got the low-stress lifestyle I wanted. And every year I hit June and I think, my God, why am I doing this? I've not seen the kids for a week. Um, so it is a, it's a difficult one to manage. And, and I think as a groundsman, as a cricket groundsman, I'm employed by, by Sussex. Um, the coach is always going to get what he asks for to a degree. Yeah. But of course, I work for the club and not a coach pursuing just his agenda. I need to make sure that the club don't lose, don't have any reputational damage. Yeah. I need to make sure that we don't get docked points. And there is a line that, that I don't want to cross and the coach will push me towards that sometimes. We're, we're not badly off here actually, but some coaches will. There's some coaches will push the groundsman towards that line and it's up to the groundsman to be able to say, enough's enough, you've got your home advantage, now I need to um, do what the ECB are asking me to do. Sure. And it's a very valid very valid position, the ECB's position, because they're concerned with, with cricket, the quality of cricket and, and the, the spectacle really, and that it's fair. So you, you kind of got to, sounds a bit trite, but you're, you're kind of a custodian of the game. If yeah. the, I hate myself for saying it. Um, but you are, so you're caught between that sky telly of their own, their own things. It, it is difficult, it's difficult. You have to be quite strong. You have to not take things personally. Um, but I won't lie, it's very, very stressful in summer. You obviously have a mechanism for dealing with that, and that's you know good to hear that you're strong enough to stand up to people. I've got a good team. My deputy, Greg, particularly, um, is, is the yin to my young. You know, he's a good guy, <laughs> he's Greg. He's very different to me. Um, he's good at all the things I'm not good at. Um, but he's, he's a good person to talk to and to, to bounce ideas off. As I get older, I learn to, um, to think on things for a little while before I respond if it upsets me. Um, when I was younger, I was certainly much more emotional than I am now. Um, sometimes I'll go and write an angry email and then not send it and have a look at it the following day. Um, so it's, I guess that just comes with age. Is that what wisdom is? I don't know, but it, it comes with age. So Andy, you mentioned your deputy there, Greg Denton. Um, he's a big part of your team. What kind of team have you got behind you? We've got a great team. <laughs> um, everyone would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah. But we genuinely have a great team. Um, Greg's been my deputy since since I started as head groundsman. Um, he's very very supportive. Um, we have a, he's my work wife. That's what I, that's what I call him. That's what my wife calls him. Um, we've got a very frank and honest relationship, so we can fall out without it being a fallout. Right, we can have yeah. a blazing row, and ten minutes later everything's fine. And I think you need somebody that you can be honest with. And we try and create an, honest, an atmosphere of honesty in the team. So it's sometimes very difficult to tell people what you think. Um, but we reassure everyone that, that it's important to let, let people know what you think and that equally you need to be able to accept that criticism and not that opinion. Everybody's got a valid opinion. so um, And it works, by and large, it works pretty well. Uh, so we've got a good culture, I think. Uh, we've just brought back a team member that left us a few years ago. Uh, he went to work at Brighton Hove Albion and he's worked around right. since. Um, so we had a a guy leaves just before Christmas, which we miss him. Um, but it was an opportunity to bring to bring Mark Gravit back, um, and I'm really really pleased about that. He's a, he's another good guy. So he's come back. Has he has he bought any lessons from the world of football that's given you any uh, new insights? I think <laughs> Mark's biggest strength is his attention to detail. Um, we never quite replaced him when he left. In, in right. terms of he's he's a neat freak. He really is a neat freak. <laughs> he's a pen in the neck. Um, but he's a good guy, and we, you know, he, he brings that with him. Um, he understands our, our ethos and our culture. He understands the job. Um, so yeah, I think that's what he brings really. Um, 
he's, he's just himself and his, his personality. It's very important. And other than your, your kind of head guys there, have you got much else in terms of support around them? Yeah, um, in 2009, as a way of trying to reduce staff costs, um, we we looked at apprentices. Apprenticeships were a reasonably new phenomenon then. Um, so we, we sort of, it sounds a bit cutthroat, but we thought that rather than have one full-time person, we would have two apprentices. Yeah. Um, that was the initial thoughts. And since we've embarked on apprentices, they've brought a plethora of other other benefits with them. Um, I, I, I've, I've lost count of how many apprentices we've had come through our system now, but we take on, when we take an apprentice on, it's a two-year deal. There's no guarantee of a job at the end of it, although for the first few years we were able to offer them positions and bring them into our, our ranks. Yeah. Um, but what we do do is try and find them a job at the end of it. Apprentices offer lots of soft benefits, but in terms of hard benefits, they offer us inexpensive labour. Um, and in return, we make sure that we offer them a good training opportunity. And that's what an apprenticeship is. It's an opportunity to learn and to develop and start your career. Um, so we enter into apprentices in, in the right spirit. It's very important that we do that and that we offer meaningful apprentices, apprenticeships. And I think you know, one of the benefits that a couple of your guys are getting at the moment is they're off overseas doing some stuff, aren't they? Yeah, they, so, so our apprenticeship programme operates in that we have three sites with here with the academy ground and with a club ground called Preston Nomads. Um, the apprentices spend a block of time at each of those grounds to really give them um, a sense of how it is to work under three different people um, and it gives them a broader a broader spectrum of groundsmanship and, and slightly broader horizons. Now last year uh, Ben Gibson um, went over to Desert Springs Golf Course in Spain, yeah. the uh, Desert Springs Resort um, they built they built some cricket nets not very long ago, and they needed somebody to run them. Um, and and Ben went over last year and did that well. It became clear they wanted us to do that again this year, and it was because of how because of how successful the nets were, they've they've been really busy with bookings, and it's a bit too much work for one guy. So it was a good opportunity to send over an apprentice to help Ben out with what he's doing. Um, so we, we're sending, we've sent one apprentice is there now with Ben. He'll, he's spending four weeks there and he'll fly back next week. And another apprentice, one of our year two apprentices, will go out and do another four weeks in Desert Springs. So it's a great opportunity um, to, to bolster their, their education and, and broaden their horizons a little bit. Not too many apprentices get that chance, I know that for sure. No, it's a real selling point. I mean, we, you know, we, we really take pride in offering a good apprenticeship and, and this was just, just a cherry on the cake. It may well be that, that it doesn't come off in the future, but uh, while we've got the opportunity to do that, although it leaves us a little short-handed um, early season, I think it's something that's worthwhile being short-handed for. What's been your favourite bit of kit or perhaps the best investment you've made down your years as a, as a groundsman? Without a doubt, the best investment that we've made was in our grinders. We've got Bernard grinders. Um, we couldn't afford a new set, but we bought an old reconditioned set. Yeah. Um, and that really has yielded benefits across the board. Um, we constantly have a zero contact cut now on our machines. So as soon as, as soon as anything has any contact, it's back on for a quick spin grind. And of course the grass is healthier and happier for that. Um, because grass is a person, not a plant, it's happy. Um, but the grass is better off for that. It uses less water, less fertiliser. The appearance is better. The machines last longer. We're spending less on maintenance, etc., etc. So I think that's the most important thing we've bought, without a doubt. Favourite bit of kit? Um, it's got to be the ATT 
units, the advanced turf technology units. Um, we, we demoed the um, Infini mower, the little pedestrian mower, about four years ago um, and, and liked it a lot, particularly the ultra groomer and the effect it has on wickets for, for grooming this ward. Um, but we, we also needed to replace our outfield mower because the units were, were shot um, or in poor condition. So we, about four years ago, we bought the ATT units and fitted them to our Jacobson right, Super okay. Light Fairway mower. Um, They've got groomers on them. It's a greens quality cut. Uh, we mow at eight millimetres on the outfield during the season, which is pretty short, uh, but we've got a density that allows us to do that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a quick outfield, but it's not it's not stupid quick. Okay. <laughs> um, I, so they've been great units. They're, they're nice to work on. The after sale support is superb. Um, they've got a few nice little design features that you won't find on other mowers. Um, and again, we have the ultra groomer cassettes that we can slot into the outfield mower and, and vertical the outfield or, or groom the outfield um, in a relatively short space of time. So we've just bought, finally, after four years of trying, we've just bought the Infini mower for the square and hopefully um, that will be with us um, by the time this goes to press. <laughs> well, that will be branded as Cub Cadet now, I think, as it's coming into the country. Yeah, it's Cub Cadet, the, the yellow thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're, they're an exciting company. There's some okay. brilliant guys. John Coleman um, is a great designer. Um, Vinny Tarbox, yeah. Mark Tilly, they're, ju they're just great guys to deal with. Um, I, I'm not alone in thinking that. Wimbledon have just swapped all their tarot's out for, for the Infinity Mowers. Yeah. So, um, you know, the great mowers. So that's that's my favourite bit of kit. After that, it's the Lloyd's Paladin. Um, we, we have two Lloyd's Paladins. We actually bought one of them last year from a club that was getting rid of it. It was yeah, this ancient thing, and that's now our main pitch mower at the moment. Um, I like them that much. We can we can service them in house. We can grind them. Um, they're after sales services, seconds and on, genuinely seconds and on. Um, you order something, the parts are there the next day, um, without exception. Um, so I like the Paladins, and I particularly like them for cutting a cricket wicket, uh, a pitch. Um, you know, we, you can knock the clutch off and push them and all sorts of things. So, yeah, my favourite bit of kit. One of the things that seems to be happening in almost every sport now is the, the adoption and the, the clamour to look at in more detail. Artificial surfaces, hybrid surfaces. Um, where do you stand on that in terms of cricket and artificial wickets in particular? It's, it's a difficult question. It's a very emotive issue for groundsmen, um, artificial pitches. The, the question really needs to be, should cricket be played on natural turf or, or artificial pitches? Um, I'm a groundsman, I'm always going to favour natural turf. Um, but artificial might offer, artificial does offer certain things in certain circumstances. Um, but if you're asking me if I think we should be playing first class cricket on artificial pitches, no, I don't. Um, it's been mooted that we might play 2020 cricket on artificial pitches in the future and it's only something that's been, been explored as an option um, and it's probably an option that's worth looking at but ultimately you're asking the wrong guy, you need to be asking ECB, right. um, it's like asking, asking turkeys to vote for Christmas in my opinion, <laughs> it would be a great shame I think yeah. if we played um, any sort of elite sport on, on plastic pitches, nobody likes them, um, the, the, the artificial Turf Lobby has done a great job in, in the marketing, um, but I, I, I sense that it's not for cricket really. Um, it, it won't happen on outfields, I don't think, just because of the sheer cost, although there's no reason why you couldn't. But again, I don't think people would enjoy playing on artificial pitches. Um, the argument for 
for artificial pitches for 2020 means that it simplifies things in terms of, of TV camera placement. Um, it also takes some of the pressure off the square if there's a busy fixture schedule. But my personal feeling is that um, perhaps we ought to explore some of the technology that's out there to grow better grass pitches and to make them more sustainable. And, and the, the technology in terms of lighting rigs, climate control, things like that, really hasn't been explored in cricket yet. Um, mainly because we haven't needed it, uh, necessity being the mother of invention. Sure. Um, but I think we, we might be entering a phase where we do need that technology. Um, and we probably need some investment from somewhere to help us help us explore it because cricket clubs are not really uh, very wealthy in terms of, of other sports. Uh, but that's something I feel quite passionate about, that we need to start exploring um, certainly light rigs, if, if not full climate control. So the, the, the grow tents and the lighting rigs, they do come at a cost. And as you, you're quite right there, you know, most clubs don't have you know, big budgets. Um, how do you think that could be tackled then? I think a large part of it is, as I said, there needs to be a need for it in the first place. So currently there hasn't been so much of a need for it. But I've got this, this, this vision almost where you could have a, a tunnel that went over a pitch that was big enough to mow under, roll under. Um, you could park it on the pitch, create ideal conditions and, and prepare a pitch, take the weather out of it entirely. So you could prepare a pitch potentially in, in five or six days right. and, and, and really monitor the pitch uh, and know what it's going to do. Um, we've been exploring and we've all been using on the first class circuit clag hammers this year yeah. or last year um, along with theta probes so we, we're measuring moisture so as time goes on we'll have more and more data on each individual pitch as to what works well in terms of hardness and moisture content um, and the next natural step is to, to take the weather out of things and to try and create surf pitches using the technology that does exist um, so I think once you if there's felt to be a need, and, and perhaps the plastic lobby might put pressure on the turf lobby to do yeah. this, but you know, if there's felt to be a need, suddenly it becomes important. So suddenly, um, at the moment, a new tractor is important to a groundsman, and, yeah. and you'll find 20 grand for a new tractor, or you'll find, you know, 15 grand for a roller. Suddenly, if you've got to find 30 grand for a, a grow tunnel or whatever you want to call it, that, that I, I think really. It's the attitude of the groundsman that needs to change, yeah. and it's not a criticism. I, I think it's um, that's if the groundsman doesn't want it, it won't happen. It's pure, plain and simple. Um, you could almost give things to some groundsman, and they won't have it if they don't believe in it. Quite rightly so. So um, yeah, we, we we may need some support from from centrally, but I, I, my feeling is that perhaps if the groundsman wants it enough, and the technology is demonstrated, then, then that's something that. You know that probably will happen.